right. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? Good. All right. Uh, my name is Brent, uh, one of the pastors here. Good to see everybody. And uh, today we're going to be looking at First Peter chapter 2. We're going to be reading uh, verses 18 through 25. So if we could all stand together <clears throat> for the reading of God's word. Again, this is First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you are, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is gracious, a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By this, by his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but like, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And uh, let's pray together before we uh, start today. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this passage. And as Sam was just praying, we do pray that you would open our hearts and, and minds to uh, receive the good news of the gospel today. We pray that you would teach us, change us, help us, God, to see things in a new way this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't been with us, we've been in a series in the book of 1 Peter. And uh, Peter writes a letter to uh, Christians in the first century, and he addresses it to exiles. And uh, exile is a metaphor for all Christians in the world. All of us are exiles. And what that means is that although you may uh, reside uh, in the world, you may own a home and have neighbors and have an address, um, as a Christian, your citizenship is somewhere else. Your values are from somewhere else. Your identity is from somewhere else. And so as Christians, this world is not our home. And Peter is asking the questions, well, how do we then live as exiles in the world? How do we live in the world? How do we relate to the world? And uh, last week, we started talking about uh, politics. So given that we are exiles, how do Christians relate to uh, politics and the political system? How does that work? And uh, this morning, uh, Peter is going to move to a new topic. He's going to ask the question, how do Christians relate to racism and oppressive systems like slavery? We're going to keep the sensitive topics going today. So uh, as exiles, how do we as Christians relate to things like racism and oppressive structures like slavery? I think this is an important question for us to talk about right now. Uh, You know, isn't it, given everything that's going on in our country, um, I was uh, listening to an interview last week with a guy named Sam Collier, and uh, he's an African-American leader in the church, and he made this statement. He said that, he says, we are experiencing the worst racial tension in our nation since the 1960s. I think that's right. There was a Pew study uh, in 2019. Um, a Pew Research Center uh, reported that a majority of Americans say race relations in the United States are bad. 
And, those, and, and of those who um, were questioned, seven out of ten say things are getting worse. Here's the question. How do we as Christians relate to this racial tension? How do Christians engage with the problem of racism and, and oppressive structures like slavery and segregation? That's what we're going to look at today. Now, uh, at first glance, this is what Peter's going to talk about in, in our passage. And at first glance, this passage doesn't seem to help us very much. Because notice how Peter begins. He says, slaves, obey your masters. That doesn't seem very helpful, does it? Uh, you know, and, and, and honestly, uh, throughout church history, this passage has been used to support things like racism and slavery. Uh, there's a book called uh, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis, written by Mark Knoll. And in that book, Mark Knoll, he's an American historian, and he makes the point that in, the ancient, in um, early American history, this passage was used to support things like racism and slavery. People used this, the Bible, to support those horrible um, oppressive systems in our country. And not only that, I mean, at worst, it can be used to support things like slavery, but at, you know, even at best, you can look at this passage and, and feel that Christians ought to be indifferent to things like racism and slavery. Here, Paul, Peter just says, oh, slaves, obey your masters. Almost like, you know, our, 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 our job as Christians is just kind of let the status quo be what it is. We're not supposed to challenge the system. Just kind of obey Jesus in your personal life and, and don't challenge those systems out there. At best, this passage can seem ambivalent towards racism and slavery. Non-Christians look at the Bible and they read a passage like this and they can say, oh, just like we always thought, the Bible's a racist book. Yep, the Bible's dangerous. We ought to leave the Bible in the ancient world. Uh, it's no help for us today. It's, uh, it just supports things like racism and slavery. Uh, you know, a non-Christian can dismiss the Bible because of passages like this. Here's the question. What do we as Christians do with a passage like this one? Does this passage support slavery and racism? Today I want to say it does, the Bible doesn't. And I want to kind of look at how we ought to interpret this passage. Now, the, the, the key, as is most often the case when it comes to difficult passages, is to look at the context. Is to look at the context. And uh, next week, we're going to look at the historical context and what Peter meant by this passage and what it means in the ancient world. But today, what I want to do is look at it in the context of the rest of the Bible. And the point I want to make is that this couldn't mean that, that racism is okay because the whole narrative of Scripture the whole thrust of the story of the Bible is against racism and oppressive structures like slavery. Now, in order to do this, I want to look at three main points today. So if you're taking notes, here's the roadmap. We're going to see, uh, first of all, that uh, an important passage for racism is the image of God in the Old Testament. And then we're going to look at the gospel itself. And then finally, we're going to look at the new creation. We're going to see how all of these things are vehemently against racism. So first, uh, let's begin our, our, our little uh, journey here through the Bible by looking at the doctrine of the image of God. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse uh, 26 and 27 says this, Then God said, let, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and, and everything creeping, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So here, at the very beginning of the Bible, we have the doctrine of the imago Dei, or the image of God. And what this doctrine tells us is that every human being, no matter who you are, no matter what race, class, or culture, or nation you come from, every human being is made in the image of God. And that means that racism is wrong. The doctrine of the image of God teaches precisely the opposite of something like racism. Uh, the Oxford English Dictionary de defines racism as a prejudice or discrimination or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. And a belief in the image of God tells you exactly the opposite. It says that every race is, is equal because of the image of God. Every human being, the Bible says, reflects God. And therefore, there is a rock-solid, objective, irreducible glory and significance to all human beings. All humans are infinitely precious image of God. And this means that there is no way that we could believe that one race is any better than another. Now, I want you to see that this belief of the Bible was unique in the ancient world. Um, the, the ancient Babylonians believed and the Egyptians believed that the king was made in God's image, but everybody else was just normal. The king was infinitely, infinitely valued, but not anybody else. And actually, Aristotle, the ancient philosopher, believed that there were some races that were born to be slaves. But the Bible, unique in all of the ancient world, taught that every single human being was equally image of God and therefore infinitely valuable. In the scripture, this teaching of the image of God is at the root of how we treat people. And so, for example, in uh, Genesis chapter 9, uh, you have the first time in the Bible where it says, you shall not kill. So before the Ten Commandments, which are in Exodus, in Genesis, it says, you shall not kill another human being. And the rationale for that command, it says, you shall not kill because every human being is made in God's image. So you don't kill not just because the law says so. You don't kill another human because of who they are, image of God. In the New Testament, this is carried through. So uh, James 3, 9, uh, James talks about uh, using your words, you know, using your tongue in a way that destroys people and hurts people. And James says, you ought to be careful how you use your tongue when you talk to that, that spouse of yours or that friend of yours. Why? It's because your spouse and your friend is made in God's image. And consequently, this is why we ought to treat people of other races with dignity and respect because we, again, believe in the imago Dei and the image of God. Now, this is a teaching not only in the Bible, but all the way through uh, church history. People have used the image of God to fight against racism and, and slavery. And so uh, one example is a guy named Gregory of Nyssa. Can we all say that together? Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory of Nyssa was a, uh, a bishop that lived in the 370s, and he was the first abolitionist. He was the first one in history that we know of that, that spoke out against slavery. And listen to what he says here. He, um, and just so you know here in this quote, it's going to talk about obols and staters. These are currency, um, unit, units of currency. 
He says this, how many opals for the image of God? How many staters did you get for selling the God-formed human being? For Jesus Christ, who knows the worth of, a, of human nature, has said an entire cosmos is not worthy to be exchanged for a human soul. Who can buy or sell a man once you realize he is in the image of God? Why is slavery wrong? Gregory Nyssa says, because of the imago Dei. You can't own another human being. You cannot sell another human being because every human being is infinitely precious. Now, of course, the most famous one to use the Imago Dei to speak out against racism was Martin Luther King Jr. A civil rights era, he's uh, speaking out against racism. And notice Martin Luther King Jr. doesn't think the Bible is a barrier to racism. He doesn't think the Bible is a racist book. He actually used, the Bible's the core of his message against racism and for equality. So here's a famous passage by Martin Luther King Jr. And I'm going to start at the beginning, but you're going to see half of it. Um, just kind of be patient for, for it to come up. He says, the whole concept of the Imago Dei as it is expressed in Latin, the image of God is the idea that all people have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every person has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him a worth. It gives him a dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard. Stevie Wonder didn't come up with that one. Precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that we will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and sisters and to respect the dignity and worth of every human being. Christians of all people. Christians, because we believe in the image of God, should be vehemently against racism and we should oppose inequality. When we look at people, no matter who they are, we ought to see them as God sees them, infinitely valuable, a rock-solid bedrock glory and significance to every human being. Let me move on in the story. So this is the Old Testament. The, the image of God contradicts racism, but I also want you to see that not only the image of God, but also the, the teaching of the gospel contradicts racism. What is the gospel? The gospel uh, literally means good news, and it's the core teaching of the Christian faith, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And in the New Testament, when Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom, he made it clear that this was a, a kingdom of radical equality. Jesus was always reaching out to the marginalized. He was always crossing uh, ethnic and, and racial barriers. There is one story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that? Where a man stopped to help somebody else on the side of the road. The key to understanding this, this parable comes down to understanding the race of the Samaritan. The, the Samaritan was a racial outsider, a, a, a hated racial minority. Jesus makes him the hero of the story. And Jesus says, you ought to love your neighbor. You know who your neighbor is? Your, abor, your neighbor is not another Jew. Your neighbor is not somebody who's part of your circle. Your neighbor is the other. Somebody on the outside. Jesus defines neighbor love as love of the other. And he says, this is what my kingdom's about. But then you come to the New Testament and you start reading Paul. And Paul talked, the, talk, talked about the grace of God. 
about how we're all saved by grace. Uh, it's not anything that you do, nothing that you merit, nothing that you can earn. You know, nobody earns their way into God's kingdom. We're all given, it, given his kingdom as a gift through what Jesus Christ earned for us at the cross. And I want you to see that this is a message of equality. Some context, when you read something like the book of Romans, which is, something, which is a letter Paul wrote, is uh, in the ancient world, there were two pe people groups that hated each other, the Jews and the Gentiles. They were like oil and water. They didn't get along. They despised one another. In fact, a, a, Jew, a, a Jewish male would wake up every morning and pray this prayer. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a woman or a dog or a Gentile. The Jews just hated the Gentiles. They, they saw them as, as not even human. Paul, in the letter to the Romans, talks about the gospel. And what he does is he says, listen, every single person is united in sin. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter what race you are or what class you are or what nation you come from. Every single person is a sinner. He unites us all in sin. He smashes us all to the ground. And then in Romans 3, 9 and 10, he says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off than the Gentile? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. In this passage, he says, all are united in sin. And the Greek word all is an interesting word there. It means all. <laughs> all means all. That's all all means. Paul says, here's the deal of every single human being, every single one of us, no matter who you are, you're a sinner. You're broken. Every single one of you. He unites us in sin. But then he says, in my gospel, it unites and it elevates all people in grace. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, every single person, no matter what nationality or race or ethnicity you are, every single one of you who are in Jesus Christ are united and are given a status as image or a child of God. And what this means is that there are no gradations in God's grace. Every single one of us has a, an incredible identity as sons and daughters of God. He brings unity. This is Galatians chapter 3. Uh, Paul says this, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ. Paul is saying, my gospel unites people and gives people a new identity so that in Christ there's neither Greek nor Jew, black or white, slave or free, but all are united. This means that if you're a Christian, your deepest identity is child of God. Deeper than your race, deeper than your ethnicity, is that you are now child of God. And what this means is that the person sitting next to you, if they're of a different race, is actually closer to you than somebody of your own race who's not a Christian. This doesn't mean that Christianity erases our ethnic differences. I mean, we're still black, we're still white, we're still Asian American or Hispanic American or whatever. It doesn't erase our differences, it just rel relativizes them, and it says that your deepest identity now is in Jesus. This was a radical message, and in Ephesians 2, uh, Paul talks about it like this. He says, for he himself is our peace, 
who, who has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's talking here about Jew and Gentile again, and he says, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he breaks down the barrier between God and humanity. But the cross also breaks down the barrier between the races, so that in Jesus there is one new humanity. The dividing wall of hostility between ethnicities is destroyed. And the gospel brings incredible unity. Folks, in the ancient world, this was a radical, revolutionary message. And I would dare say it still is today. And I think we, people struggle so much with it because it brings such equality. In fact, when you read throughout the New Testament, you see that there's ra racial tension everywhere. People are struggling with the idea that both Jew and Gentile can be equal. Let me tell you a couple stories about Peter, who wrote this letter. Because Peter struggled with this. There was one time Peter, he was, um, he was out preaching the gospel, gospel in, the, in the Roman world. And uh, God tells Peter, hey, I want you to go to Cornelius, who's a Gentile, and I want you to give him the gospel. And Peter says, no, Lord, I don't think I want to do that. Because Cornelius is a Jew, and we all know that Jews are unclean. They're not worthy of the gospel. Well, that night, Peter went to sleep. And in, in his sleep, he had a dream. And in his dream, out of heaven came a, a, a tablecloth filled with unclean animals. If you're a Jew, some animals are unclean, like pork and shellfish, all the good stuff, right? And so uh, Peter said, no, Lord, I'm not going to eat that. That's unclean. And God says, don't you ever call unclean what I have called clean. You bring the gospel to the Gentiles because it's for them too. And so Peter goes and he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles and they're brought into the kingdom of God, but Peter still struggles. In fact, there's one place in the New Testament, Peter, man, he, he does everything wrong. Have you noticed that? But here he's struggling again with racism. And it's later on and they're, they're in this house church and, and Peter's sitting down to a, with a, having a meal with Gentiles and it's, they're eating you know, unclean food, you know, pork is on the table and shellfish. There's Gentiles everywhere and they're having this great feast and it's diverse and it's wonderful and Peter's having a great time. And then in the door comes some Jews from Jerusalem, these ethnically pure you know, Jewish people. And Peter sees them walk in the door and Peter quietly excuses himself from the Gentile table and goes and sits with the Jews again. This ticks Paul off. And this is an amazing scene. It's in Galatians chapter 2. You see Peter and Paul fighting each other. And Paul calls Peter a racist. Actually, I found this picture online uh, this last week. This is Peter and Paul at each other's throats. And P Paul is saying, Peter, you're a racist. What are you doing? This is hypocrisy. And he says, Peter, your racism, notice what he says. You don't, I'll just paraphrase it. He says, Peter, your racism is not just against the law, though it is. Peter, your racism is not only against the image of God, though it is. He says, your racism is contradicting the gospel itself. Because at its core, the gospel is a message of equality. We are saved by grace. And that means the ground at the foot of the cross is flat. 
And that means that any time that you treat somebody of another race or another culture or another ethnicity as less than, you are rejecting the core of the gospel. The image of God, the gospel itself, but I want you to see the new creation. And this is pretty cool. So the, the Bible has a vision of our ultimate future. Uh, the Bible's a story, and in the book of Revelation, it, it points us forward to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is when, when Jesus Christ returns to this earth to rule and reign with perfect equi equity. It's a time that all Christians look forward to, where Jesus is going to make everything right. It's our vision of the future. And what I want you to see is that when you look at the book of Revelation, our vision, the Christian vision of the ultimate future, is radically multi-ethnic and multiracial. Revelation chapter 7. Look at this vision of the future. This is written by uh, the Apostle John. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Notice, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice, who is gathered around the throne? Is it a monolithic group? Is it a homogeneous group? No, it's a group of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. What this means is that the Christian vision of the future is multiracial. If you feel uncomfortable now when you see races mixing, if it makes you really uncomfortable to see different races getting together, well, listen, the kingdom of God is going to make you really uncomfortable. Because it's a vision of radical inclusivity of all nations and all cultures gathered around Jesus. I had a friend, his name was Chinua Ford, and uh, Chinua was part of my church when I was in my 20s, and he was an African-American guy, tall, dreadlocks, great guitar player, and uh, he was one of the only black folks in our church. We, I went to this kind of suburban, you know, church in Orange County, and uh, one time I came to Chinua and I said, Chinua, how does it feel to be one of the only African-Americans in this very white congregation? And Chinua was like, man, I love this church, Brent. I love this church. I love these people. He said, it may sound odd, but I feel comfortable here. I said, that's great. I said, you, you don't ever feel weird? He says, well, there's sometimes, sometimes people will say things to me that sometimes make me uncomfortable. And I said, well, give me an example. And he said, well, there was one time when this man came to me, and he meant well, he meant good, but he can't. I love this man. But he came to me, and he said, Chinua, isn't it going to be great that there's going to be no color in heaven? And Chinua brought him to Revelation 7, and he says, excuse me, there's going to be all sorts of color in heaven. This is our ultimate future. It's incredibly diverse. And he says, I know the guy meant well. But he says, sometimes we just miss this idea of, of the diversity of Christianity. And here's the thing. We as Christians, Jesus taught us to pray a prayer that says, your kingdom come, your future kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what that means is that this diverse, this multi-ethnic future kingdom should be brought into the present by the church. We ought to be a preview and a foretaste of this future glory.
So when we come to passages like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, we, we, we read about slaves obey your masters. Man, we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to get into the context and what he meant by that. But I just want you to see that, man, if anybody comes to you and says the Bible is a racist book, I want you, you to be able to say, image of God, the gospel of equality, new creation. The whole thrust of the Bible is against the idea that one race is better than another. And what this means is that racism is a serious sin. You know, a lot of times you can kind of think about racism as sort of a, a marginal sin or kind of a little thing, but gosh, if this is true about the Bible, this means that racism is a really big deal. Man, I grew up, I, I grew up in a church and told you about it already. I don't know that I ever heard a sermon about racism. And I guess I never thought of it as a biggie, you know? There are other biggie sins that you avoided, but have you ever thought about this as being a biggie sin? I want you to think of, about a few things as we close here. First of all, let's examine our own hearts, and let's just ask ourselves the question, could there be any prejudice? Could there be any racism in our hearts? And, and I know that most of us, and, and maybe we're right about this, most of us, as we think about it, we think, gosh, we're, we're not all that racist. We do, at least in our, you know, the best that we could know, we're, we're not racist. I know that a lot of us think that way, but man, look at, the apostle Peter was a racist. And if, if he could be guilty of it, then I think we can too. Racism, racism is notoriously difficult to see in the mirror. And so I think what I'd like you to do this morning is just examine your heart. The beauty of Christianity is that there's no unforgivable sin. This includes racism. There's freedom to admit your faults and admit your own brokenness because there is always forgiveness and we're redeemed not because we're good, inclusive people, not because we always obey. We're redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this means that we could admit when we fall short. And there's always more grace. I want you to also think about this. Um, do we oppose racism when we see it? It's one thing to say, I'm looking at my own life. I don't think it's my problem. But when you see it in society, when you see it out there, do you do anything about it? Do you care enough to look out at this world and stand up to racism when you see it in systems and in situations? Um, as I was preparing for this sermon, I, I called a, a friend of mine in the congregation. He was a, an older man, and I know that's relative, but he was older than me. And he was telling me a story. He said, Brent, when I was, he said, I grew up in the South. And he said, I remember in junior high, the year after they ended segregation and they integrated the schools. He said, I, I had a, a, an African-American friend, and he joined my baseball team. He said, I love this guy. He was amazing, great baseball player, super smart. But he said, I remember one time uh, we went, we played a game in some other southern town. After the game, we went to this diner. And he says, at the diner, the woman who was the uh, waitress very politely looked at the black kid and said, we don't serve his kind here. And he says, you know, my dad was the coach of the team. He said, my dad had so many faults. But he says, I had so much respect for my dad in this moment. He stood up and he said, boys, we're out of here. And they ate with this boy 
in solidarity on the bus. What I love about the story is, is that the coach just said, hey, this may not be my problem, but when I see it out there, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say no. Where can we stand up and say no? Do, where do we need to care enough to do something about this? Um, one thing, I don't, it's hard for me to, as a white guy, you know, leading a mostly white church, it's hard for me to know what I can do, but somebody this past week sent me some books about racism, and I've been reading them. And I was reading this one particular book where it went through racism in the U.S. and slavery and all that. I got so mad, I just stood up out of bed, and I was like, it just was heartbreaking. And so maybe it just looks like reading some books and then educating yourself on the problem. Talk to some African-American friends or some people of other racial minorities about their experience. Finally, let's uh, demonstrate. Let's demonstrate uh, the ra racial reconciliation that we see in the gospel. Let's be a church that is radically inclusive of other races and cultures. Let's be a church that can demonstrate what the future of ki the kingdom of God looks like. Let's be a foretaste. Let's be a preview. Let's stand in solidarity with our friends who might be victims of racial injustice. One thing I love about this passage, and I'll be done after I say this, is when you look at this passage, you ask the question, where is Jesus in this passage? He does show up. He's actually with the slave, being beaten with the slave. And I love here, it says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. There's an old book written by a theologian called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And the early American slaves, one thing that brought them incredible comfort was that their Savior also died on a tree. He was there suffering with them. He was showing solidarity with those who were oppressed. And I, and I ask, you know, just as, as a church, where are we? Are we showing solidarity? Are we identifying with those who may be victims of racial injustice? Because this is where Jesus is. At this point, I want to just kind of end our service with a prayer. So Hayden's going to come out. And uh, let's just kind of sit and all lead, lead us in a prayer where we um, just reflect upon racism in our own lives and see if we might be guilty of this sin. Hayden's going to pray for the nation. And just as we've seen, this is a time of racial tension in our culture. And then we'll conclude. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this uh, beautiful vision that you give us in the Bible. It's a narrative of equality and racial inclusivity. Lord, I pray that you would enable us as a church to reflect racial reconciliation. God, I pray that we'd be champions um, for this cause, that we would see how central it is to the gospel. And Lord, I pray for us, God, as we reflect on our own lives, that, that you'd help us to repent. Lord, if there is any uh, sin in our lives, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see that. We thank you for the gospel that gives us the freedom to confess our sins, infinite forgiveness. We are justified not by our good works, but by your amazing grace. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open us up, and I pray that you'd help us to ask forgiveness if, there's, if this is something that's in our own hearts.
Father, I just want to lift up our nation and our city to you. God, we are in desperate need of a Savior who stands up for justice and equality. Help us to be a people who, who strive for that and who seek to be more like you in that way. God, help us to be a light in our city and in our nation. Help us to stand up for equality, stand up for injustice. Help us to love our brothers and sisters of color better. God, help the gospel resonate in our lives in such a way that just help us, that helps us just to see things differently. As we examine our hearts and examine our lives for racism, I, I just ask that you make it easy for us to see our faults and our failures. And at the same time, make it easy for us to stand up for those who can't and maybe not be able to stand up for themselves. So God, I just ask that your gospel just cover our nation, cover our city, so that equality and justice can be at the forefront of everyone's heart and everyone's mind. That's in your name I pray. Father, Lord, we do also just thank you, God. I, I thank you for this congregation, for these precious people. Thank you for the heart of embrace that are that is evident in, in each in each in every person here. I pray, God, that you would enable us to be a reflection of of the future kingdom. Lord, I, I don't know what that looks like here in Batesville in this congregation, but I pray that you give us imagination. Help us, God, to see uh, how we can be a reflection of that beautiful uh, reconciliation that's at the heart of your gospel. We pray that you would do this in our church. And we do it in, we pray it in Jesus' name.